Welcome to the Collect Call. This podcast is an offering of the Acts 8 movement, proclaiming resurrection in the Episcopal Church. I'm Brendan O'Sullivan Hale, and I'm a layperson and a member of the Episcopal Church of All Saints in Indianapolis, Indiana. Holly isn't with me today because she is doing very important things, presumably, in her capacity as a member of Executive Council. But we didn't want to leave you hanging after episode number 100. So for episode 101, we're bringing you a previously unpublished interview from the archives. I was privileged in June to be able to interview three church planters doing interesting work in the suburbs. Emily Finn and Deb Anderson are planting Emmaus Episcopal Church in Surprise, Arizona. And Gray Lassane was so early on in planting a church in Brownsburg, Indiana, that it didn't even have a name yet. Spoiler alert, it's called Good Samaritan now. Why have I been holding on to this interview since June? Unfortunately, the quality of the audio is not up to our usual standard. It turns out recording a four-way call on an iPhone, on speaker, with what is basically a digital cassette deck, is not a winning strategy for a crystal clear interview. So portions of this show may be difficult to understand. It's taken me a while, but I've also made an edited transcript of this show, which you can find in the show notes. So if there's anything you can't quite make out, all will be made clear there. But without any further ado, let me turn you over to the folks doing some of the most exciting work in the Episcopal Church. My name is Gray Lassane, and I am planting a new Episcopal community in the suburbs of Indianapolis, Indiana. I'm from the Diocese of Indianapolis. I'm Emily Finn, and I'm the pastor of a new Episcopal Church land in Survive Arizona. And I'm Deb Anderson, I'm a commissioner with Emily at Church Plant. And what is your plant called? It's called the Mayan. Okay, I just want to make sure I, I, I Googled it, and uh, I, I wanted to make sure I had found the right place. Can we start with just giving me a summary of what you're at least attempting to accomplish in each of your contexts? Uh, if you can tell me a little bit about when you started and what are the major steps that have happened so far? Okay, well, we are uh, we're in a, a suburban community just outside of Phoenix, and Surprise is a really interesting community in that all but about one square mile of it has been built in the last about 12 to 15 years. It grew really, really quickly during the big boom a few years ago and then crashed just as quickly with the with the market. And it was a community, and, and it is, again, a community of just about 120,000 people ordered on one side uh, by a long-time existing community that actually started with the your Tire Company decades ago. Um, and on the other side, by planned retirement municipalities. So nestled in between those, each of which has their own existing and, and, and growing um, Episcopal Church. And in between those is this little community of, you know, 120,000 plus and no Episcopal presence at all. I actually was in charge of the youth at, as one of the other two congregations for about the past decade. And the size is, demographically speaking, primarily married couples with children. Over the course of the past 10 years, those children's average ages have crept up into the teenage range. 
So my, my kiddos that were down there and, and lived up here were having a hard time getting back and forth and just for, for a couple of years have been coming and saying, you know, there's a lot of churches and youth groups in surprise. None of them offer what the Episcopal Church does if you want one there. And then I was the, um, I was hired to be the associate director at Cabinet Episcopal Church, which is in Sun City West. And one of the things they wanted me to do was, was to look at what it would be to reach out to the community of surprise, which is right next door to Sun City West. And, and when I started talking to people and trying to figure out how to do that, one of the people I reached out to, of course, was, was Deb, who was the youth minister of the church on the other side of surprise. And, and so what I quickly figured out was that these young families were not going to come to a church in one of the retirement municipalities. If people were going in surprise, they're going to attend another bachelor. It has to be an Episcopal church in surprise. So the more Deb and I talked, and she had a kid who needed something in surprise, and I had adults who needed something in surprise, and the more we talked, the more we realized that what we were actually doing was figuring out how we might plant a church together in surprise. So that was that's how that was born. And we didn't actually intend to do it quite as soon as we did, um, but just just under a year ago, it was actually the end of July uh, last year, a group of those kids, we, we got together a little team, a discernment team to see if this was even a team. Uh, and on that, two of those kids on a discernment team, and they stopped us at our second meeting and they said, look, we need something, we need it now, start it for the start of school and we'll bring you a group. <laughs> and we looked at each other and said, oh my goodness, we have 10 days before school starts, and lo and behold, they brought us a group. So we started a church. So, okay, so um, so we started a church sounds uh, deceptively simple. What was the first step? The first step was putting together that discernment team. We put together the people I had been talking to and the people Deb had been talking to. We got them together in a room and sat down and, and asked them if this was even a possibility, and they all got really excited. So they became our discernment team. And then, like I said, the two teenagers on that team then started youth group. And so we did the same thing. We got the seven teenagers who were interested together in a room and said, what do you want this group to look like? You know, and then there were eight next week and 10 a week after that, 12 weeks after that, 15 a week after that, and uh, so that, the, the kids just took off. With the adults, it was, it was a little more of a process. The discernment team eventually became a Bible study and then the Bible study revolted and then I thought we were here to plant a church, so they became a watch team. <laughs> the part that she's missing in there is that in the beginning, as that discernment team was meeting, we, we had ourselves placed on the bishop's calendar for a, a meeting where we thought we were going to walk in and say, wait, here's interest, please, 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 let us do something. Yeah. And we thought we would have to make some kind of big argument for why we should be allowed to do this. <laughs> like, we walked in, and we, uh, he greeted us with, good afternoon, I hear you want to plan a church, how can I help you? And, you know, that kind of was... was um, that was decisive. <laughs> so well, we were we were fortunate in that we got permission to try early on. And my church was was very, very helpful and sort of loaned me part time to this new church plan, um, which is not usual. They've been so generous. Yeah, and I unfortunately had to step away from the group I'd been with for, for a decade. But left now with a thriving group and, and you know, leaders that had worked with me and, and I was confident in so so that was a challenge and a half on the personal front, but it also, you know, paved the way to do stuff with a, with a new group that's just amazing, amazing kids. And then we did, we were very fortunate in that the diocese was also 
uh, looking at some other options. I know you're, you're familiar with Smith and the church you planted in Scottsdale. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, um, you know, building on that and, and some other interests from other folks, you know, around the state, we happened to get into this just weeks before there was a, a church planning boot camp plan. So we, we walked into that. As part of that, one of the pieces of advice was to sort of in terms of fundraising was to, you know, to see sort of the people you know. And, and Emily and I looked at each other on from Connecticut, and she attended the Yale Divinity School. So we looked at each other and said, wait, everybody we know is in Connecticut. And ended up taking this, this essentially a fundraising trip and, and having lots of conversations, one of which ultimately led us to the small market and then onward to Philadelphia. So it's been sort of a, a series of, you know, meet and learn and make the next connection and learn and, you know, go from there. So mm-hmm. we have other share challenges too, you know, as anybody mm-hmm. does. But by and large, it's very, very positive. We've been having lots of conversations with students, no gas, cat, nativity, and Scottsdale, but uh, one of the things we found is that there is no one science-fits-all model for church planting because, you know, a lot of the things that sort of work in Scottsdale with the kind of demographic you have in a, in a sort of more financially secure type A white-collar community, um, they're not the same. It's not the same kind of community. Our demographic is very different. They tend to be middle management and blue collar, less educated, less, certainly less wealthy. A lot of people in caregiving professions, a lot of people being there for. Mm-hmm. So a lot of our, a lot of our challenges are different from hers and we've had to, we've had to sort of keep her model and then she's fine on it. Right. Um, I think that's the other thing too, is it, it, it should look similar. Uh, if you, you know, look at a map and you look at the number of school churches in a given area, et cetera, et cetera, it looks uh, from the third side view, very, very similar, and what we're finding on the ground is that, uh, you know, landscape is not the only thing that mm-hmm. <laughs> counts, you know, being roughly equidistant from the center of Phoenix and all that, so very different. So if we fast forward to where you are um, about a year in, what, what do the activities of, of Emmaus look like? Well, we have um, a, Sunday, a Sunday service uh, from 4 to 5, um, it's primarily for our launch team. We haven't done a, a public launch of any kind of service. So it's not, it's, it's public in the sense that people can invite people, but it's not public in the sense that we've had any kind of grand opening. Right. Um, so we have a, a service from 4 to 5 that's primarily for our launch team, and then our youth group meets from 5 to 7.45 every Sunday. And so we build on that. The rest of our time is spent sort of out in the community. We, we just established office hours at that. Um, strategically located coffee shop and cool. Yeah. <laughs> so, so we have a, we have a service that, that is slowly growing, and and we have a youth group that has pretty much remained constant and, and all gone deeper. And actually, what we found with both our youth um, and our adults is that they're they are now ready to go out into the community. They they want to see yeah. and grow the church, and they also want to do outreach project project which I think is the next step to actually grow the church. Oh, well, we hope so. We're talking about those events tonight. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so an outreach program, and, and we're planning a big open-space discussion model, big community forums that kick off the school year, specifically to hear the voices of the kids, the teenagers, and, and what their challenges are, uh, given, you know, given the events that have gone on in the country, and the fact that we are a we so different. 
but what are the issues here? And, and what we found is it seems like um, the beginning of stated that, that there are plenty of options to survive for a home or four megaturns. The kids are looking for something more traditional and and I'm gonna make the word there intellectual. I think is where our kids are. Well, and and for people, they 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 come back from some places like Radiant is the biggest megachurch. It's like what eighty thousand mm-hmm. on a Sunday. So they're huge. Um, but the kids, our kids come back from places like that. They go there with their friends. And they come back to us and they say, well, that was a great concert, but you know, it wasn't church. Hmm. Um, so we're trying, we're trying, well, I think what we're trying to do is get a little bit more into the community we're in because it is so old and so good in tradition and this is a 15 year old community that just doesn't have any of that kind of bridge built into it. So in a sense, it's kind of odd to try to build and to try to create a new old church in a new community that doesn't understand old things. <laughs> right. Um, so, but the kids want that. The kids are, are 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 sort of almost desperately seeking something that has roots, that goes deep, and that goes far back, that, that has been there before they were here and will be there when they're gone. Um, like that's what they're looking for. As a case in point, our, our first meeting, well, kind of two, our, our first meeting with the kids after that initial discernment team uh, with them, but we, we had them throw their cell phones in a, in a pile and... and a reflection with them that led them from cell phones to wanting to discuss the near side of Brian's audit because their world is so confusing and chaotic. And then the follow-up conversations that happened with one of the one of the twelve-year-olds at the time, and she called me aside and she said, "Look, what I really want is I'm, I'm on my phone twenty-four-seven. I use it to escape from everything. And when I'm not comfortable, I open up Facebook or whatever there. What I need from you." is to teach me how to calm down and how to pray and how to be part of my own life. I was a 12-year-old. Uh, yeah, and that's a familiar challenge for me as an adult, so I can only imagine when you're 12. Mm-hmm. 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 And these kids are so much more, I mean, it is a challenge for us as adults, and these kids, these kids have grown up with this, you know, from day one. Right. So, yeah, they're, they're, they're navigating a whole, a whole different kind of world. Right. Um, so so that, that's an interesting thing that you, you pointed out is just um, the so sort of generation gap between like boomers and millennials shows, shows up in an interesting way there because it almost seems like the, the, the boomer generation had so much reality that they needed sort of entertainment and but these kids have so much entertainment that they can't they don't have any reality they don't have anything real and meaningful, and so they're looking for the exact opposite of what their parents are looking for. Hmm. They're looking for real and meaningful, and specifically not entertaining, because it's entertaining, they suspect that it's thinking. And not easy. Yeah. They don't want to think and they want to do is you caught up the bills, and, but they don't know how to do that. They have real practical bills, exactly. So, Gray, um, you know, you're also operating in a suburban context. You're much earlier on. Uh, from being Facebook friends with you, this idea of strategically located coffee shops sounds very familiar because I see you check in a lot. But can you kind of talk about uh, what you're doing and how it's similar and how it's different from uh, what Emily and Deborah are working on? It's surprising, no pun intended, uh, how similar our, our, uh, our strategies are. Our contacts are a bit different. Um, so I'm in a 
seeing strip fair and housing developments going up overnight. Um, mm -hmm. People move out of the inner city of Indianapolis or out of the suburbs of Indianapolis and go further out because their kids can go into excellent schools, the school district where I serve, the Brownsburg School District. Um, I've been on the job since March, and uh, I have strategically located myself within the community. Um, I've been, my, my primary job since March 1st has been to create networks and to establish connections within the community. So I've parked myself in Starbucks and in other coffee shops uh, at my office uh, and made appointments with anybody and everybody who would talk to me in the community so that I can get to know the community and its needs. Um, the two primary questions that I keep asking in the community are, um, where is God already at work and how can we join in to the holy work that's already happening? Um, and then who's in the margins uh, that's not connected to the conversation but needs to be a part of the conversation? From those questions, I've been able to make contact with a core group of about 45 individuals since March the 1st that have said, put me on your list, I'm interested. So we have a small core of about 45 individuals at this point. Um, and we're gathering several times a month for social activities, but also for service. Um, as a great example, we just gathered this past Wednesday at a food pantry. Um, it's a food pantry that's run by the district in Brownsburg. Actually, a group of high school students run it as part of their special needs class. They offer them life skills and preparing food pantry as they would a store. But uh, since they are on vacation, uh, our church has adopted the food pantry for the summer. So we prepare the food pantry uh, for clients the next day. And then from the very same table where we have prepared the food, we celebrate a short Eucharist at the end. So we're always connecting liturgically what we're doing in our service lives. The other times that we're gathering tend to be in pubs, coffee shops, libraries for conversation and kind of spiritual nourishment. Um, but even then, we've kind of kept as a core rule that every time we gather, we will serve in some capacity. So uh, we have done things like preparing goodie bags for teachers at a alternative high school uh, in town, um, trying to keep the, our, our norm of every time that we gather, we serve in some way. We are finding that we, there's a lot of gravitational pull towards that service and outreach. Uh, there are several evangelical megachurches in the town where we are now serving, but none of them um, have opportunities for their members to engage in direct service as part of worship. So it's something we've been designing in worship that's coupled with service. But do I understand, Greg, that, that like um, Emmaus, you don't really have sort of a regularly scheduled Sunday at 10 a.m. worship service. It's the no, worship as you um, gather on these service projects. Right, right now we're, we're gathering connections and to serve. We, we do not have regularly scheduled Sunday worship yet. Um, one of the new mantras, at least, uh, of one of the models that we're using for our church plant is not to uh, offer regular public Sunday worship until we have a strong core uh, built. And for me, that kind of core number is somewhere between 100 and 200. So I will keep on gathering at some small groups, gathering at super worship, gathering in kind of more social occasions so that we can build connections with each other. What these women are doing in the Diocese of Arizona is something that I'm hoping to replicate in the sense of building up the community that's the core that's gathered so that they can then go out and uh, invite their friends and invite others uh, into the community. So what Ben and are doing is really exciting to me, and I hope to, to model that. You know, we, we talked with this church in Surprise about an Arizona-Connecticut nexus of funding. How are you approaching the fundraising challenges? I've been very grateful our diocese has also been equally supportive. Uh, when I when I was seeking to do this church plan, I wrote uh, to the bishop a three-page proposal 
Uh, she was very eager. She shared it with our diocesan council, and they immediately approved uh, salary funding for me for three years. So I'm very fortunate in that I have my salary funded for three years as we get this off the ground. Um, but I am seeking for our program and ministry dollars right now, collaborations and partnerships with fellow congregations and with individual donors. So uh, I've had some great conversations with several uh, of our congregations in our diocese about coming on board as what I'm calling equity sponsors, that they're offering me lines of equity, that when we have costs that we need to incur, that we can call upon these sponsoring congregations and they would offer uh, donations in real time so that they get to experience with us as we grow and as we learn um, and as we incur costs rather than just writing a check and sending it off to a black hole and never hearing from us again. Emily and uh, Deb, you know, you've talked about liturgical worship being a distinguishing feature of what you're offering in Surprise and that it's something the, uh, the kids that you're working with in particular respond to. I'm wondering how that manifests itself. So I'm a typical Episcopalian who has never been involved in a church plant. By the time I got around to Nativity Scottsdale, it was pretty well established. I I'm curious what that experience of worship is like at this early stage. I mean, so that's the way to describe that is to describe what happened with the Grand Canyon. We, when we first, when we first uh, started our youth group, um, we, I, I've never seen a group of teenagers gel the way these did, and so we, we knew that we needed to take them on retreat immediately to sort of um, connect that bond that they were developing with each other. So about four weeks into it, we took them on retreat to the Grand Canyon. So they, so they, they've been, they've been up all day. We've driven all the way there, like a five-hour drive. We got there, we got the tents, they were happy, they had dinner, we went hiking, they ate dinner, they shared their spiritual autobiographies with each other. And then it was about 11 or so, and we told them that you have to go to bed. And they said, no, 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 we have one more hour, one more sharing. He said, okay, but then you have to go to bed because we have to get up at 4 o'clock tomorrow. <laughs> he said, oh, why? And Jeff wasn't going to tell them. Or stop what we're doing at Penn Church, or you know, they, they 
they've done that, but they have to. Yeah, I'll tell for that grade. That'll happen. They'll revolt. For once, you will revolt. <laughs> I'll tell you repeatedly. And I'll thank you when you listen to them. But, but they just, at one point, we were, we were here and, and they were having this conversation and you're sort of sitting around in a circle and, and, and doing a reflection. I don't even remember what it was. But they just stopped. And all of a sudden, there was silence, and they all sort of looked at each other, and then one of them piped up and said, well, wait a minute, we're, we're, we're supposed to go out, and, and, and we're supposed to not be disciples, we're supposed to be apostles, that's what you're telling us. We just got it. And then all of a sudden, it was, well, now we need worship, and now we need this, now we, we want to go do that, and, and they just, it was so neat to just watch their faces, it's like it just came on all of them at the same time, and one of them spoke. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and that was the developers. Yeah, that was an amazing moment. The, the, the model that we learned at the church planting boot camp did specifically warn against starting regular weekly worship services. But what we found was after about a year, they were just, they were just starving for it. Mm-hmm. So the launch team was, and especially the ones on the launch team who don't have somewhere else that they worship regularly. And, and, and I've been warned of that same thing too. Yeah, yeah, and I think I think one of the things that we've been we've been thinking about is that 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 model for church planting is is based on um, you know it came out of evangelical churches, and what we realized is evangelical churches you know the public worship service is not where the spiritual nourishment happens in in an even the evangelical model. The spiritual nourishment happens in the small group, mm-hmm. right? Like you all get together and you sing great songs and you do the public worship, and that's great. But wherever you have to get those small groups, um, that's the part they start first, right? And so that's the part they start first. So of course, it's the small group, and you get the public worship service when you have enough people that you know you're more than a small group. But in the Episcopal Church, it's different because our spiritual nourishment comes from the Eucharist and the liturgy. And then there are small groups. So, so we almost sort of started feeling like we were trying to, we were trying to plant a church without a spiritual core, because there was no Eucharist. I, I, I think for liturgical churches, the model has to be modified in some way. And I don't know if we've modified it correctly or not. That, that, that we have yet to, to, to actually have that theme. But somehow we have to figure out how to feed the people who join us who come to Eucharist for spiritual nourishment. Mm-hmm. Um, the ones who joined us who are from more evangelical traditions don't care. Right. They're fine. They don't care whether we have a worship service or not. And the half of our youth group that is not in the civilian still comes to worship service. They don't know that that's important. But for the ones who are, you know, sort of born and bred into the civilian, they, they needed that. Um, they didn't understand how we could possibly build a church um, when we weren't happy, when we, when we didn't have Eucharist. So I don't, I don't know that we, I don't know that we've hit on, on, on of the right kind of compromise. But what we were told is that if you start the service, then all your energy goes into service, and you don't use that energy to go out in the community to make connections. And that hasn't really been a problem for us. We, we, we designed this service to be primarily for our launch team and to be so low maintenance that, that we don't pour all of our energy into it specifically. But yeah, I'm not sure how to achieve that balance when, when, when that is the spiritual core. I'm, I, I, I don't know. I'm not sure about 
like long Susan took was much like Susan took had a launch team and a few months later she had enough of a launch team to launch services, you know. Mm-hmm. But when when things go on for, you know, a year and people still don't have that, that spiritual core. Um so then our team just came back to us saying, the youth were fine. The youth were, I've got this thing, it's standing, you're doing events, I can invite a friend. He said, the adults came back and said, well, I can invite them to the Bible study, but I don't want to invite them to build something. And so what we, what we sort of came up with was, you know, you invite them to the service. You tell them what it is, you tell them what stage we're at. They come and see. And then we decide, you know, they decide, do I want to help build and stuff what this looks like? Um, and I think, too, that, I agree to your point, and, and our bishop and Kansas Ordinary and Council, I mean, they all supported us to the best that they could when it sort of came out of the blue, and they, they funded us as well, both of us. Yeah. Um, that's well, not how it's important in the Diocese of Arizona. Usually the diocese says, we need a church, so do that. The only other person who's ever walked up to the bishop and said, I want to plant a church is to yeah. right. <laughs> But I think that was enormous for our people when they saw the bishop and council backing us and our candidates, the ordinary came out and visited with them. And I think all of a sudden they went, oh, we're actually building that. Right, this is actually real. And we're, we're in, we're in, we're in grade folks also. We, we're, our salary, we have two salaries funded for two years by the diocese. So, um, I mean, they couldn't have been more supportive. Um, something that literally walked into the bishop off that blue one day and said, hey, you want to start your surprise? <laughs> Our bishop has been really um, encouraging and, and helping us to see that, as she said, this is an experiment. Uh, we're not quite sure how it's going to turn out, but we won't let us be trying. And for me, that's that most encouraging statement I've heard in the Episcopal Church in a long time. And I think that we're moving into this season of experimenting and trying and, and being open to these new ideas. Um, it, it was really exciting to, to kind of <laughs> try this out before the bishop is, and, and to hear her say, "Why not? Let's, let's go for it." Mm-hmm. I forget if it was at the it was at the conference in Philadelphia or somewhere else, but somebody talked about it, thinking of church planting in terms of uh, research and development, in terms of investment in research and development. And I think that's exactly what we're all doing, right? The things, the, the, the ones that work, like activities and some models for the next the next people come along, and the ones that don't work also become models for the, for the next ones that come along. I think to not fund church planting because we're not sure it's going to work is self-defeating because we won't find out what works unless we do that initial investment in what is basically research and development. And some of them will work and some of them won't. But either way, we have information. And that's what we need right now. And I almost think to put my sort of priesthood youth director hat on for a moment, we need to do the same kind of investing in youth. That's been missing for a generation, if not two, in the Episcopal Church, and we're seeing the results of that in, in our numbers. That people who are people who are over thirty don't it is assumed that the church doesn't care about them. Well, they assumed that because the church didn't care about them when they were children and teenagers. And so we need to put that money now into caring for these children and teenagers who frankly can't support a church. You know, like our strongest membership is our youth group. They can't support us as a church. But we need to invest in them, not for Emmaus, but for the church in general, for, for, for you know, 
the only way to have people is to is to invest in these kids now. Well, that was something that that when we first met, uh, Emily had asked me in regards to my youth group. And when I started it at, at the other um, church, but when I started it, I had the first meeting with two kids and, two, and four pieces. They were very full children by the end of the night. And when I left it, there was a roster of 75. And she asked how that happened, and I just said, I waited. I mean, that's, we did, you know, we did things, and, and, and I loved the kids, and we did all this stuff, but basically I waited. I waited 10 years. I met these kids when they were four. I left when they were 14. And they sort of grew into things. And that's what I think we need to do with these our changes now, is we need to wait for them to grow into adults. Mm-hmm. You know, who are the next, who will be able to support the church. But when she says she didn't do anything, she did everything, right? Because what she did was she developed, she as the youth director, developed relationships with four-year-olds kept those relationships as they became teenagers, and then kept those relationships until they graduated from high school. So she developed relationships with four-year-olds who did keep in the church, and then kept those relationships with them as teenagers. And that's what we need to do. And then, you know, then we need to take the next step and figure out campus ministry. And we need to take the next step and figure out how to support young families. So we have to reinvest from the beginning, I guess is what I'm saying, and not expect any sort of immediate return. I think that's the other thing we did at the very, very beginning is we, you know, we took a walk around the block one night and said, wait a minute, we're going to go to the mission. We wanted to fail. And, and have this whole conversation about, you know, what if it fails? What if we tried something and it fizzled? What if we tried it and it doesn't work at all? What if, you know, and, and what we came to was the only way that it's actually a failure is if we don't try anything. Most of the other people, they all leave. Uh, then we try something else and gather new people. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> there is no failure. Do, do not. The one thing I keep telling myself is that um, that I know that uh, that the, the guaranteed way for nothing to happen is for me to do nothing. Um, and so that, that, that's, that's a good place to start. <laughs> and so anything exactly. uh, is possible past that. <laughs> it seems whenever we get into that mode, we get a nice little shove from yeah. afar. So... <laughs> We've spent a lot of time here talking about investing in who we're go- who's going to be the future of our church. Can we get a little bit more specific about what it is that, that your respective ministries need from the wider church? I, I think first we need prayer. We, we are, and that's not just lip service. I, I think that we would benefit from and we would be grateful for a church that is praying uh, for new ministry, for ministry development, for ministry redevelopment, a church that keeps us constantly in her intercessions. Uh, so that that is first and foremost the, what I need from broader church and what we need in Brownsburg. And then what I am most hungry for, I, you know, I, I, we're running this first shoestring budget, and I'm okay with that. But what I would be most grateful for is resources for uh, formation and development uh, for my people um, so that they know how to co-plan a church with me. Uh, the lay leaders who have felt called to do this and are, and are on this journey with me. And I'm hungry for colleagues and companions who are along this journey as well. Uh, so uh, time and fellowship with those colleagues would be wonderful, a wonderful gift to me. Um, we've had a little bit of that as the church planners gathered in Philadelphia this past April with Tom Brackett, who uh, heads the South National Episcopal Church. And I'm grateful to have these connections with folks like Beth and Emily who are doing this kind of uh, work in the fields along with me. So I, I'm hungry for the fact I think too, in that that idea of, of research and development, 
is real in the sense that we, we are starting churches in areas that don't really understand the Episcopal Church in general, and then with demographics like you who don't understand church in general, we do need, we do need financial support. Um, we need financial support for programs like youth ministry that actually don't support themselves in areas like surprise where there isn't an established Episcopal congregation you know, that, that can decide to fund youth ministry. Um, if we're not an established con- congregation, our youth group really actually does run on the shoestring budget. Oh, no budget. Yeah. So, so I think, too, that, that idea of um, almost, almost the way, you know, people used to invest in foreign missions, mm-hmm. I think we need to, we need to somehow figure out how to, how to, to, to insert that in a new way into the culture of our established congregation that, you know, part of what we as an established congregation do is, you know, donate money to people who are out in the mission field, not, you know, somewhere across the ocean, but out in the mission field in the south somewhere planting a new church or doing youth ministry or working with marginalized marginalized groups who can't support themselves. So I think we almost need to look at missions, at, at sort of funding missions or supporting missions um, as established congregations in, in a different way. I think, Ray, I think you hit the nail on the head for me, and, and even in a specific order. Um, <laughs> I, I like that a lot. I think the one thing I would add to that is we need that room, try and fail, and try again. And not in any way to say that, that we should either not be accountable or have responsibility for, you know, to give the bigger interest. But, but we're not going to do it right every time, the first time. Um, and to... You know, for to have that two years, three years of salary in the in the week, so that you know you can continue. You know, I need to feed my kids, you know, and um, and and then I'll give them dinner and get right back up and try something else. And but it's that it's that security to know that you know, yes, we expect results, but we also expect failures, and some of those failures are going to get results. Well, uh, I'm curious before we close, is there? Any question that you wish I had asked? I, I go to a pretty well-established church, and I, I'm, there may be things that I have that aren't even on my radar that are important to you. I think I would just say the way that we came into being, um, it's sometimes easy for a large established or it's an established congregation. I'm thinking back to my home parish in Connecticut with about 15 people in it, um, you know, less than dearly. And what I heard in visiting recently was such excitement for what's going on here in Surprise and Relief and them telling me that their church was dying. And quite literally it is. The congregation was aging. What they're what we kind of sort of way off about what they didn't didn't acknowledge whether they see it or not is that actual tangible presence of the spirit that is still there with them and and they see it here and I think acknowledging that um, and looking at what that you know what each of those ministries is specifically being called to do and they're so very different. Um, but I think that just kind of plays into the first thought we had in terms of each ministry looking different and they're not being a, a very, you know, clear-cut single model for church planting. And just really, you know, looking at, at what that 
actual movement is at any given moment in any given community. Yeah, I think that's exactly what I look at it too, is, is that uh, the Holy Spirit is real. And anybody who does this kind of work, this sort of missional church planting work, is going to feel that shove. But there, you know, whether 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 you got into it because you know you were appointed to church pleasure somewhere and you had to go out and figure out how to do it, or whether like us you were just kind of pushed into it from the beginning, the spirit is out there waiting to use people who put themselves out there. And some of these two things actually, it, it's really exciting. I mean, that is something we can take back to the the, the broader, wider church is. Out here on the margins, the spirit is actively doing things and doing really exciting things in really exciting ways. But that's also, I mean, the spirit is doing it. We're doing work of the Holy Spirit, and so it's not going to look like what we might expect it to look like. And at times, it is just like scary, or it just feels like you're just being because that's what's going on. So I think that that's the yeah, that's the message that's the message that I would want to give is that it's real. It's real. And it's real and tangible in in the same way it was two thousand years ago. And it's not safe and it's not pretty and it's not, you know, in the context of our of our little society, it's not unsafe either, which I think makes it more of a challenge. Um, but at the same time, it's so valuable and and absolutely tangibly real. Mm-hmm. And something that I, I get asked often, and something if you ask me, is something you might have asked is, um, how can I and you know my my established parish that has regular Sunday worship with a beautiful building um, be a part of this movement? And of course, there's we're we're grateful for support out on the margins. Uh, as well, but um, I always, I, this morning I was preaching at, a, at an established parish here in Indianapolis, and we had this conversation during the forum time. I asked them to, to pretend as if they were planting their church again for the first time in their neighborhood. Uh, what would they do differently? Um, how would they get out of their building? Uh, I'm mindful of the uh, free practices movement that's kind of emerging as we get ready for general convention. Uh, one of the need to travel lightly. Uh, if I had any piece of advice for an existing parish, um, after having served in, in parishes for almost uh, 12 years, is to get out of the building um, and to get into the community, uh, to see the community again with new eyes, and, and to, to be present and to minister with your community outside of your, your building as much as you can. Um, not to, to discount the building, uh, but that, that helps you to use the building as a resource in ways that you might not have thought of uh, to begin with. Well, and Gray, I don't know if I, I didn't tell you this, but I have been paying attention to some of the things you've been saying. And uh, as a little baby step in that direction, when our uh, stewardship committee had our first meeting of the year um, a few weeks ago, uh, we deliberately met elsewhere in the neighborhood, but not in the building, uh, as a result of exactly what you're saying. It, just, it helps you to see, see your community with new eyes, if nothing else. That's the, the worst case scenario. Best case scenario is that you welcome a newcomer that might uh, be part of your of your community. Well, you all have been really generous uh, with your time and your insight. Thank you so very much, um, and uh, I, I will keep both of your ministries in my prayers. Thank you. Thanks, Brendan. 
Thanks to Emily, Deb, and Gray for all their time, and apologies for taking so long to get this out there. As compensation, I promise we'll do a follow-up interview soon to see how your communities are doing now. To find out more about Emmaus, check out EmmausEpiscopal.com. They're also on Facebook as Emmaus Episcopal. To learn more about Good Samaritan Episcopal Church, their website is brownsburgchurch.org. They're also on Facebook as Episcopal Brownsburg. You can find The Collect Call on Twitter at The Collect Call or email us at thecollectcall at acts8movement.org. Our parent organization, the Acts 8 Movement, is on the web at acts8movement.org or on Facebook or Twitter at Acts 8 Movement. Our music is Let All Mortal Flesh Keep Silence by Aaron DeVries, distributed under a Creative Commons license. Find more of Aaron's music at badgerland.bandcamp.com. And join us next week when I promise Holly will be back. I promise we will talk about a collect, and we also have a, uh, a secret special event, uh, which you will find out about in due time. Uh, there is an audience participation component to our upcoming show. We'll see you then. Let all mortal flesh keep silence And with fear and trembling stand Ponder nothing earthly minded For with blessing in his hand Christ our God to earth descended Our full homage to